This episode of Table Talk is sponsored by JFoodO, dedicated to sharing the best Japan has to offer. Over the next few months, JFoodO and a selection of London restaurants will create seafood and sake pairings for spectator listeners to help develop your knowledge and enjoyment of the drink. The pairing will focus on the concept of umami, which in Japanese means the essence of deliciousness. Welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today we're delighted to be joined by Rory Stewart. Rory has been an academic, writer, adventurer, politician and diplomat. After time in the army and the diplomatic service, he tracked across Afghanistan, was appointed a fellow at Harvard and wrote a number of books before entering parliament. He was a cabinet minister and also made his bid for the Tory party leadership. He's now a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, where he teaches politics and international relations. Rory, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you. Rory, we're going to start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? Earliest memories of food are bacon and egg sandwiches on a bamboo raft in the Malaysian jungle with my father. So every weekend morning, he would wake me up at six in the morning, and we'd take bacon and egg sandwiches wrapped in uh, silver foil and we'd get on a homemade raft. Sometimes he'd make it from bamboo, sometimes he'd tie a couple of car tires together. And then we'd go floating down a river and we'd stop on shore and we'd eat our bacon and egg sandwiches. And you were born in Hong Kong and, and moved to Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur before returning to the UK. How big an influence was that on your early life when it comes to food? Huge influence. I think that partly because of that, my favourite food still is, is Chinese dumplings, is dim sum. I eat rice uh, all the time. I, I think, yeah, I would be very happy <laughs> living in Asia, eating in Asia all the time. And what, what were family mealtimes like? So family mealtimes were funny because I, my father was 50 when I was born, so he was born in 1922. And he was quite an old-fashioned person, even for somebody born in 1922. So dinner was very, very strictly, at the same time every evening, and was very formal, involved him sitting at the head of the table. And I wasn't allowed to join them at dinner, I think, until I was eight and a half, when I was sent off to boarding school. Up until that point, I, I ate separately. And it was a great sort of great moment when I was finally allowed to join them at the dinner table. My, my father's great motto was that children don't enjoy adult dinner parties and it's no fun for the adults and no fun for the children. And before you joined your father's dinner table, who, who would you have been eating your meals with? B- before I joined, I would have been eating, because we were growing up in Hong Kong, Malaysia, right? I would have been eating with the cook, who was a lady called Arkane, who'd worked for my mother for since I guess the late 1950s, so nearly sort of 20, 25 years. And were you eating predominantly Asian food at that point, or was there also Western English-style food being served? Malaysia in the early 80s, there definitely was Western food, but it was quite limited. There were kind of a couple of supermarkets. So normally we ate Chinese or Malaysian food. But I do remember we could get Alpen cereal, which I loved. 
um, which I'd have with sort of strange UHT milk. You couldn't get sort of type of milk that people normally drink in Britain. And you then went to the Dragon School and, and then Eton afterwards. What, what are your memories of school food? <laughs> my, my memory of the Dragon, which was this little school I went to when I was eight and a half. So my parents were by then still in Malaysia, then moved on to Hong Kong. So I was um, a long way away from them. In the evening, our evening meal consisted of bread with strange spreads, which were called fish or meat, but what was actually in them was a little bit unclear. Then in the morning, once a week, we had kippers and the teachers were very insistent we had to eat all the bones in the kippers and then put a lot of brown bread down after the bones to catch the bones. It was, so we were told was the way to eat it. And did, did you like kippers? Or? <laughs> I, I think I'm still, still a little traumatised by kippers. I, I, I've just been um, reading this wonderful children's book called the Once and Future King, Sword and Stone Trilogy. And in it, Merlin serves breakfast to the young King Arthur. And it's a description of a sort of breakfast they still had in the 19th century. So they have, in addition to kippers, they have deviled kidneys, they have fricassee, they have chicken so spicy it takes the top of his roof off, along with peaches. And I was really impressed by that because it struck me that, yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of more, I'm more into the bacon and eggs. <laughs> and after Eton you went to Oxford were you fending for yourself cooking there eating entirely in halls what was your, your Oxford food experience like? Because I hadn't really met any girls at all until I was 18 my Oxford experience was basically dominated by trying to persuade girls to go out for meals with me so I would eat out breakfast, coffee, lunch, tea, supper I lived basically in Pizza Express I, I ate two meals a day in Pizza Express. <laughs> was, that, was that your go-to place for a date? Uh, yeah, the, that was my go-to, along with a rather kind of horrible coffee bars where I would try to persuade people to eat weird sort of millionaire's shortbread or bits of strange kind of um, chocolate biscuit cake. Yeah, chocolate biscuit cake. And after Oxford, you worked in the diplomatic service. What was food like during that period of your life? So I, my first posting was in Indonesia, in Jakarta, and it was still, I suppose, I mean, it's the mid-90s, not very long ago, but it feels quite old-fashioned compared to what the Foreign Office is like today. So still as a young diplomat, age 23, I was given this quite big house with a staff, with a cook and a butler and a driver. Every morning started with fresh mangoes one morning or fresh pineapples the next and coffee in a funny silver pot and milk in another silver pot that got poured in at the same time. And, yeah, a lot of noodles. I ate a lot of noodles. My, my most traumatic memory of, of food is um, when I was 16, I was in one of the British youth karate teams and I went to Japan with a very motley collection of people, including Bear Grylls. And we were in a training camp in northern Japan and... Every morning for breakfast, we got different versions of sushi. And as a 16-year-old, I was really traumatised by this. So I finally said, can I have an egg for breakfast? And very solemnly, two days later, I was brought a bowl of soy sauce with a raw egg sitting in the middle of it. (laughs) Did you eat it? I tried, I tried, because it was a very (laughs) kind of disciplined uh, martial arts training camp. But no, it didn't go very well with me. 
Well, you've obviously travelled a lot during your career. Is there a country that you sort of come to love the food of, particularly? I think China, above all China. When I was 15, I cycled through southern China and I lived off dim sum. In particular, the, the prawn rolls, which are called hakao, and the prawn pork, which is called siumai, and then these wonderful pork dumplings called cha siu bao. So I, I, I love dim sum. And are these things that you would only eat out or do you replicate them yourself at home? Are you, are you a dumpling master? I'm definitely not a dumpling master. I'm a really, <laughs> really horrible and useless cook. I'm, you know, very, very proud of my boiled eggs. <laughs> Tell us about the journey that was the basis for your book, The Places in Between. You travelled across Afghanistan, Iran, Pakistan, India and Nepal. I mean, whilst not, not the point of of the journey or the book, the food must have been incredible. Yes, so, as you say, I I walked for 6,000 miles from the edge of Turkey to the edge of Bangladesh, and I was walking 20, 25 miles a day. And I stayed in, I think, 550 village houses on that route, night after night. But essentially, I was in remote mountain areas, and in Afghanistan in the winter, people eat only bread. And it's true in a lot, in those days, a lot of northwestern Iran. Sometimes a little bit of white cheese, and once a week, maybe a little bit of meat in a wealthier house. In western Nepal, it was very, very poor quality rice with dal, thin black lentil dal, and in Pakistan, dal with different forms of bread. So... It was very interesting to realise that many of the people I was with in Afghanistan looked incredibly healthy. I mean, Afghan men are often very, very strong, very good-looking, but were living on a diet that you would have thought was lacking in most basic nutrients, although I later discovered that the, the bread is filled with nutrients by the World Food Programme. And you've also you spent time in Iraq as well. What, what was the food like in Iraq? So in Iraq, I was the deputy governor of two provinces, and there I was very spoilt because there were endless feasts and huge mountains of lamb on rice or incredible grilled fishes, along with yogurt and sometimes, if you were lucky, for putting baklava, these these lovely sugary sweets. And tell us about... We're often joined by politicians on this podcast, and we always have to ask them about the food in, in the House of Commons. What kind of fare did you enjoy or, or not enjoy during your tenure? Well, I think the, the, the main bonus of the House of Commons is the bacon and eggs in the tea room. So there's, there's a really reliable, you can have any type of bacon and eggs you want at any time of the day or night. The all-day breakfast is the centre for the whole thing. The other House of Commons food, I mean, it's fine. It's a bit weird. I mean, it's all sort of, kind of, a sort of vision of 1970s nationalised Britain. So instead of having a Costa coffee in the House of Commons, which probably would serve cheaper coffee much more quickly, the House of Commons runs its own coffee shop where you seem to have to queue for about 15 minutes before you get your coffee. And it's sort of rife with industrial action. I mean, there's endless sort of pay disputes, questions around unionisation. It's a really interesting um, insight into what happens when governments try to do catering. And tell us about 
the time when you were running to be London mayor because you you notably walked around quite a lot of London and, and, and stayed with different people what what was your experience of the food when you were doing that well I think Nigerian community I thought was extraordinary I'd never really eaten Nigerian food and I seemed to spend a lot of time in Nigerian restaurants eating unbelievably spicy food so that was a, a real eye-opener for me I was very lucky to be able to volunteer a couple of times in soup kitchens, which was, um, I, I thought, wonderful. I mean, I, I really was struck by the people that were volunteering there who, who do it every week and what it meant in their lives to have that weekly routine of friendship and food. And I sort of wonder whether if I was to learn whether that isn't something that would be a rather wonderful thing to do once a week. I, I, I was really impressed by there seemed to be a lot of cheerfulness and as mp your constituency was penrith and the borders is that somewhere you've you spent much time eating out tell us tell us about cumbrian food so cumbrian we're very 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 proud of our food very proud of our food um so obviously a lot of cheese and i was very lucky to be able to support a whole new cheese producer up in viewcastle and get their cheese down to markets in london the lamb is extraordinary, and that is both lamb on the salt marshes out towards Rockcliffe. It's the upland lamb, and the lamb on the strange ground around Bucastle Valley by Hadrian's Wall. There are more chutney makers, marmalade makers. We have the, the great international... Well, marmalade awards. That's it. Absolutely. You've got it. Have the greatest marmalade awards, which include getting grandees like the Japanese ambassador up to compete. So marmalade's a big thing. And there's actually increasing number of very, very fancy restaurants. There's a wonderful restaurant open called Ascombe Hall, which is just south of Penrith, where you really do feel that, you know, the most extraordinary, exquisite local food, local herbs, local flowers, local produce, all put together into very, very impressive meals. But no, I think Cumbrians eat, eat very well because farming is so central to what everybody does. Food production is so central to the whole, everybody's life. And with your role at Yale, you must have obviously had more experience of American food. What, what's your take on American food? Well, I've been at teaching at Yale during lockdown. Yale is famous for having the best pizza in the United States. So there was a, a Neapolitan community that migrated to New Haven, Connecticut, and that brought the beginnings of American pizza and still produce extraordinary thin pizzas. But a lot of lockdown for me, of course, was the weird luxury that we have in the United States and Britain of food being delivered and the incredible range of things that you suddenly find, not just Amazon packages turning up at your door, but incredible sushi suddenly emerging on your doorstep. I haven't yet found anybody there to send me Chinese dumplings. That's my main objective. And sounds like perhaps not, but are you much of a cook, Rory? Do you, do you, do you enjoy cooking? No, no, I'm a really not a cook at all. I think I s- said I was a bad cook. I, I'm, I think that's misleading. I'm really not, not a cook at all. If forced to, could you turn something out or not? <laughs> so when I'm in Cumbria on my own, I, I live on porridge and oat cakes. Very healthy. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what is comfort food to you? I love chicken soup and I love all the different chicken soups of the world. I think it's a really strange thing, chicken soup, because you can get incredible Filipino chicken soups, incredible Thai chicken soups, obviously wonderful Italian chicken soups, Israeli chicken soups, 
French chicken soups. I mean, I do think chicken soup is one of the, the most extraordinary, magical things in the world. And Rory, we normally finish with a question about your desert island meal. What, what would your desert island meal be? My desert island meal is a Middle Eastern dish called shashuka, which is a, it's egg and tomato and Middle Eastern spices mixed up in a saucepan and served with, in my case, it would be a sourdough flatbread. And I, I think that would keep me very happy on my desert island for a long time. And would, would you have pudding? Pudding? Yeah, that's a good question. For pudding. Do I like for pudding? I don't really like pudding. No sweet tooth. No. It's just kind of kind of sort of horrible revelation. I think my pudding is sort of, <laughs> pudding is kind of oat cakes and honey or oat cakes and marmalade. Well you can have that. <laughs> Rory, thank you very much for joining us today on Table Talk. Thank you. Have a lovely uh, day.